Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope you and your family are safe during these unprecedented times. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to give a shout out to our sponsor. If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely, and I have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all the major chains through easy to use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure. It ultimately enables high quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. That was beautiful. What are you, a contra soprano? I wish I had a good voice. I spend more time and money on music than almost anyone you know. Really? I have more parties. I have a gospel choir that comes to my house once a month uh, for gospel brunches. And I just have a terrible voice. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's got like a a raspy, very solely element, which is great for radio, maybe not great for singing. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, as you can probably already tell, we have Mike Novogratz on the other side of the mic for the first episode of the scoop for 2021 it's been an eventful year that's probably an understatement in not only the crypto market but beyond over the past few weeks since we've gone offline for a little bit we've seen bitcoin skyrocket above forty thousand dollars a coin and now after this past weekend we've we've settled back down around thirty-one thousand. so we're about 20 percent off the highs but still we're seeing a lot of momentum in the space volumes are mounting in otc markets and on spot exchanges, we're even seeing some SPACs come to market. And we're going to talk about a lot of this, but first, let's let's take a look at the market. Novogratz, a lot of the people I'm speaking to in the trading world are saying that this is effectively a healthy correction after <laughs> some interesting market movement. A lot of liquidations out there, nearly $3 billion, um, over the last 24 hours. Does this look healthy to you, or are you uh, getting a little... I, I, like, I like making money, not losing money. <laughs> and so... People always talk about healthy corrections. Uh, you know, if you're long, they don't feel very healthy. Um, listen, the market got way, way overbought. It was overbought by every uh, statistic, uh, every metric you can look at, you know, from RSI, it just to option premium to ball. And so we were in a bit of a speculative frenzy. The story is powerful. The Bitcoin as a hard asset story remains intact. Matter of fact, it's probably getting stronger. Um, and so this is a washout. It's a position washout. I don't think it's going to be long-term damaging. Uh, 30,000 should hold. Uh, it's bounced a few times off 30 today. If it doesn't, it's going to be 26, 20, 25, 26 that holds. Uh, there is lots of institutional demand that haven't filled their coffers yet that continues to want to buy. Retail got levered up. Hedge funds are pretty long. And so... You know, there's certainly people that can sell the thing, but insurance companies, asset managers, big institutions haven't bought Bitcoin yet and they want to. And so I feel I'll sleep well. Uh, I was nervous as heck at 41,000 because, you know, you sell a little bit. You don't want to sell too much because you're bullish long term, but you know it's overbought. You hear Elon Musk is buying for Tesla's balance sheet. I can't confirm that, but I've heard it from sources. And so you're like, God, that's going to get announced. It's going to go higher. And the story's powerful. And we've never been 
in a fiscal environment with money growth the way it's going. And so even though I've traded for 30 odd years, there's an argument that you can be made that the charts don't make as much sense right now because we're $4 trillion of deficit spending in the United States and now Biden wants to do more. And so this macro story is, is powerful. And listen, we gotta watch, we gotta watch price action both here and in equities. You know, I, I look at Tesla as a second version of Bitcoin, right? It's like a mini religion. People just buy it. Valuation doesn't make so much sense in Tesla, but they buy it as a religion. And so that that's cracked a little bit today. It hasn't cracked nearly like Bitcoin has. I want to talk about that macro aspect that we're seeing playing out right now. But before we dive into that, what, what would you say to folks who are looking at this price chart right now and saying, this is exactly why I don't want to get into this market. Large macro investors who are maybe sitting on the sideline and saying this asset class is still too volatile. Listen, I mean, you saw oil, the oil price uh, go to negative 35 bucks last March. Macro investors love, <laughs> love volatility. They love, they love markets that, you know, tell a story that get overbought, they get oversold. And so I don't think we're scaring macro investors off. We could be scaring institutional investors off and say, whoa, um, listen, we, we, we were way overbought. The story is powerful. I don't think it invalidates anything. We've always told people, you know, it was an 80 vol asset, then 100, then 120 vol asset. You got to size yourself, right? You don't buy as much Bitcoin as you do dollar yen, um, right? Dollar yen's a 10 vol asset. And so I think people learn to, put the right amount of position on. And most of the new people buying it are buying it as a long duration trade. They see it as a long duration asset. And so what's unique is these institutions are buying it. Like when Mass Mutual buys it, they're not going to flip this thing out anytime soon. They're going to buy more, right? They're an insurance company that's bought a hundred bucks. Then they're going to buy, they'll slowly build up to a full position. Uh, there are two other insurance companies I know of that have bought. You know what they always say, one guy's kind of a lunatic. By the time the third person's out on the dance floor, it's a movement. Mm -hmm. um, and so how many insurance companies are in the United States? And in Europe, we're going to see more and more insurance companies move in. We're going to need some more asset managers. You know, we have a fund with the CI group uh, up in Canada, a Galaxy Bitcoin fund. So something like this doesn't pump the brakes on those types of firms coming in, in your view? Not, not, not at all. Quite frankly... Uh, everyone's feel like, oh, we missed our chance. And now we're like, good, 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 good. We get a chance to kind of <laughs> go back to the clients and, and, and raise the second slug of this thing. Uh, you saw Scaramucci and his group at, at Skybridge getting involved. That's right. But more and more groups are, are creating mechanisms to reach out to customers, to sell them the Bitcoin story, to get them engaged. And so I'm not worried at all about the health of uh, the next six to 12 months in Bitcoin uh, or crypto. You alluded to the fiscal stimulus that we're likely going to see as a result of this blue wave, uh, Democratic control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency under President-elect Joe Biden. Goldman Sachs actually put out research note that kind of outlined their thesis around how that's going to drive S&P earnings per share higher and also lead to higher interest rates and higher inflation. Higher inflation kind of plays into this Bitcoin narrative, but how do you think higher interest rates does. Does that create, you know, some sort of asset bubble that might impact Bitcoin as well? What, what do you no, see? Uh, no. so, listen, higher, higher interest rates are bad. Um, yeah. uh, my, but even one, for Bitcoin. Yes, bad for everything. So the one hedge I have on, I'm short a bunch of March 
23 euro dollars, EDH3 on your Bloomberg ticker, uh, betting that in two to three years, the Fed might flinch, right? Right now they say we're not raising rates for at least three years. There's a scenario you can draw out, right? People finally get vaccinated. There's a pent up energy. I know my 23 year old son wants to have like 17 parties, right? <laughs> Young pe- people have not been able to go out. I bars feel like you right might now. want to have 17 parties too, Mike. I'll have a few. But bars, restaurants, music clubs, Broadway, as that all reopens, right? We're going to have an explosion of GDP growth. Commodity prices go higher. People start traveling. Gasoline prices go higher. And so you could be seeing in the summer, all of a sudden, a booming economy. We already have asset price inflation. We start getting a little bit of real inflation. And maybe the Fed gets nervous and says, we got to take the booze away from the punch bowl a little bit quicker, right? That would mean rates, the front end rates sell off, would be bad for gold, bad for the crypto story, bad for all assets. And so I think it's prudent to have some, you know, short two to three year paper in your portfolio if you're long a bunch of Bitcoin. So given that backdrop, what do you think is the thesis for Bitcoin going, you know, over the next 12 months? The, the real thesis is, Adoption, adoption, adoption. More and more people are hearing the Bitcoin story. It's gone viral. And once something goes viral, it's, you know, you get friend groups telling other friend groups. And and so we are moving at an exponential rate in terms of people's understanding it, in terms of people believing in it. And that's why even if the gold story stays neutral to negative, Bitcoin can stay positive. Now, the base case is the gold story doesn't stay neutral to negative, that political systems don't know how to get themselves out of this trap that we're in, right? This trap is how do we, we keep using the same medicine every time the economy gets sick, right? Economy gets sick, doctors of the economy who are in two seats, right? The minister of finance seat or the you know head of the treasury and the central banking seat use the same medicine. Let's spend more money and let's, let's buy more assets. Let's keep rates at zero or make them negative. That medicine is what's driving Bitcoin. It's what's driving the inequality that we see in America, right? The rich, poor gap. Every billionaire I know made a fortune this year and 50% of America has no savings. And so they didn't make a fortune. They've been hurting, right? We have 60 million people food insecure. It's why we saw the insurrection at the Capitol, right? The Capitol, like our political instability has never been higher. Our market instability, quite frankly, has not been higher. And, and so it's a really hard trap to get out of, right? If I was the central bank governor, I'm not sure what I'd do different. And I just told you he's creating this inequality. He's exacerbating it. And so part of the Bitcoin thesis is there is no easy way out, right? If you're Gen Z or millennial, you're screwed, right? Your parents and grandparents have spent all your money in the future. Uh, you just don't know it yet. These deficits aren't going to be paid back. And that's the debasement of currency. That's how the dollar gets weaker and weaker, uh, not just versus other currencies, but versus gold, versus real estate, versus Bitcoin. What you hope is, for, from a civil society perspective, you don't hit the point of no return, right? And the point of no return happened in Venezuela. It happened in, in uh, Zimbabwe. It happened in Weimar, Germany, right? You've seen countries hit the point of no return. We're a long way from there, a long way. We've got smart people at the stewards of our economy, but the possibility and the probability of it happening is going higher, and therefore the price of Bitcoin. Bitcoin as a hedge to that, Bitcoin as a as a portfolio adjustment to that uh, becomes more and more powerful. 
to a degree, these emerging trends, this political narrative, um, this this degree of political uncertainty is unlike anything we've seen here in the U.S. for quite some time, mounting deficits and a weakening dollar. These are all unique aspects. And of course, an economic and health crisis, the likes of which we've never seen, has kind of opened the door to maybe some more wealthier folks and institutions to enter this market. But I'm curious, you know, there still should, or at least there probably are some concerns that linger out there. What are some of those bigger concerns that remain for investors? We kind of hit on volatility, but is there anything else that maybe is keeping folks from diving in? Um, Listen. What about the infrastructure maybe? I think the infrastructure is being uh, improved daily. And so I think we've passed that, that hurdle, right? There are 15 good places to custody these days, at least. And, you know, the OCC under Brian Brooks went out and said, hey, banks should custody assets and they're allowed to. That's a big, big deal. So pretty soon if you're JP Morgan and your customers, what, what I think is going to be interesting in 2021 is from JP Morgan to Goldman Sachs, to Morgan Stanley, to Barclays, to Deutsche Bank, they have fought the crypto move. They have not wanted to be in this business. And now their customers are demanding it. They're calling them up and saying, dude, what are you talking about? I can't store my Bitcoin there. You're my banker. Figure it out. And so I'm seeing the back end of it as we meet with these guys in their wealth management groups, in their in their custody groups. You're going to see all of the banks move into crypto. Now, that's good news for crypto. Uh, I'd like them to wait another year and a half so I can keep building Galaxy. Um, <laughs> but they're coming. They're coming because people are demanding. The other thing I'd say that I think is, you know, it would be wrong not to mark this moment. You know, we, in the last five months, everyone has been talking in the institutional world about Bitcoin, 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 and Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin as a digital goal, Bitcoin being distributed, building the rails to distribute it. Maybe more importantly, or just as importantly, is what's going on in the rest of the crypto space. The Ethereum network booming, right? Stable coins booming, uh, DeFi really growing up at a rapid pace. And when you see something like today, and I'm a pretty progressive son of a gun, uh, and I've been vocally anti-Trump, but when I see Stripe, you know, tell the Republican National Committee that they're not going to process any of their fundraising payments anymore, uh, it scares the shit out of me, right? When I see China go after Jack Ma, uh, and say, yeah, scares the shit of me. So like in China, we've got the government shutting down billionaires. And in America, we've got the billionaires shutting down the government. It literally screams out for decentralized systems. Uh, I stole that quote from Malaji, I heard. Uh, and I like, it was so brilliant, but it's dead right. It's screaming out for a different way to look at things. You know, Twitter censoring. And uh, you, you can make your argument. I, like, I think Donald Trump became a real danger to them. To, to the U.S. and to himself in some ways. And, you know, like a little spoiled brat that doesn't doesn't play by the rules. At one point, you put him in the you put him in the box. Uh, <laughs> but but the amount of censoring that goes on on these social media platforms. And listen, it's a brutal position to be in if you're Mark Zuckerberg or, or, or Jack Dorsey. Yeah, it's not uh, an easy, easy one. There are, there are better systems that can show up to replace these where are decentralized. And so I'm a big buyer of the, you know, the decentralized space. Mm-hmm. So that kind of feeds into this political uncertainty narrative. There's this element of decentralized systems offering 
a superior alternative to some of the centralized platforms that we have. Well, right you now. know, it, it, it ferociously pisses me off that the progressives, right? You saw, you know, Congressman Taleb put out some sure. anti-crypto. Like I was like, crypto is progressive. I said, it's going to be my mission to, to meet with AOC this year and explain to her how crypto is progressive. You know, it, it because of kind of bro culture and, you know, uh, people making money on Bitcoin and mostly, you know, rich white guys. Uh, if you, if I look at my crypto, uh, if I look at my Twitter profile, right, it's 85% men, 15% women, and it's it's not well populated with African-Americans. Uh, and so that doesn't resonate with the progressives. But at its core, the blockchain revolution, the crypto revolution is unbelievably progressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's let's, re, let's remake financial infrastructure, financial markets and in, in, and systems in a more egalitarian, transparent, and fair way, right? And so, I'm a I'm miffed a little bit that the left hasn't embraced crypto. <laughs> Maybe they associate it too much with a with a libertarian streak. Yeah, no, there's a lot of truth to that. So that might be playing into it. I want I want to go back to this infrastructure question. Um, you know, we definitely see folks like. Deutsche Bank is one example of a firm uh, in traditional Wall Street working on prime brokerage solutions. JP Morgan, we've reported, has explored things like subcustody, talking to firms like Fidelity Digital Assets. But then at the at the same time, Novo, you have companies like Coinbase, right, today it, investigating issues relating to transactions on on their mobile app and and there's sort of being issues with duplicate activities and issues with some buys um, being executed. So, you know, we still have venues buckling under this pressure, um, but maybe it's impacting retail more so than the institutions they might be giving uh, superior services to. Yeah, it, listen, it's certainly impacting retail more. I uh, don't have a retail business, uh, and, and so I can't be too sympathetic, but these guys are getting huge amounts of flows and it's just stressing their systems, right? They, they, they're all relatively new businesses, new being three, four, five, seven years old. Crypto a year ago was, right, we were five, 6,000 and in Bitcoin, we're 32,000 now. The volumes have exploded. Heck, we traded over $2 billion worth of tokens ourselves this weekend, just in our systems and our automatic trading businesses. And so the amount of volume going through the pipes is immense. And I've got confidence that if it's Coinbase or whoever else, Binance, we'll, we'll, we'll get it right. Uh, in some ways, it's just endemic of just how much business is going on. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow the block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. When I hearken back on 
one of our first conversations on the show, um, it must have been a year or a year and a half ago, uh, the picture wasn't as rosy. I remember <laughs> no, you saying, wasn't. you know, you guys were maybe a little too early on the asset management side. You know, a few folks had left, a few big ticket executives have left. I think you guys reduced some headcount. And now here you are talking about a $2 billion weekend. Um, you guys are expanding the headcount. You guys told us that you're looking to bring on a summer analyst class. Was was this completely driven? And then let's not forget, of course, right, you want to talk about gains, a thousand percent in Galaxy Digital stock last year. How much of this has been driven by the market and how much of this has been driven by key decisions? And then we can unpack those made by Galaxy in 20. No, listen, listen. I mean, I think in the big picture, we were smart to say we're going to be this bridge between institutions and the crypto community and that the herd would come. Uh, I was two and a half years early. And, you know, by the end of last year or the year before, was depressed. I was like, shit, you know, I'm not sure the herd's coming. Like, when's it coming? I know it's going to come. Uh, <laughs> the whole space got bailed out by COVID. And it got bailed out in two ways. COVID gave the, the, the economic response to COVID was the perfect macro backdrop for crypto, right? This story of Bitcoin as digital gold was tailor made for the COVID response, for the COVID crises. And so it was so easy to tell. I remember my friend, Michael Daffy, did a call with a bunch of hedge fund managers because he was bored out of his house. And I got on and, and talked to probably 40, 50 hedge fund managers in London. And, you know, a lot of them knew crypto, but most didn't. And it, it, it was because people were looking at what's happening in the world with macro. And if you spoke macro, it was the perfect language, the perfect language at the perfect time. And so I don't know how many of that group is in crypto now, but a big portion of them. And so it was easy to convert people all of a sudden to the Bitcoin story. Just as importantly, we had the digitalization of everything. I was surprised this wasn't a Zoom interview because that's all I seem to do. Like Zoom didn't even exist. And now it's, you know, my best friend, uh, <laughs> right? Microsoft CEO said they did more in two months than they thought they'd do in two years. JP Morgan or Bank of America, one of the two set up 45,000 workstations as workstations for their employees in like six weeks. Uh, just staggering how we rewired the workplace to be digital and remote. And so that played into the crypto world, right? They played into stable coins. And I don't want to touch paper dollars. And man, I've, we only had a, a national wallet system where we could just hand out people's, you know, dividend checks, you know, from the, the stipend checks from the COVID response directly. I don't know how many people call me and say, wow, this is crazy, why don't we? And so all these ideas and this momentum came back into the, into the, the non-Bitcoin side of the space as well. And so now I think we've crossed a tipping point, right? People are hiring, they're not hiring. They will, there will be a boom bust cycle right now. This is a boom. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing it in the hiring, right? You guys brought on Michael Ash, formerly of Oppenheimer to lead investment banking and we are we are in the next day or two going to put up a twitter account uh kind of galaxy hires or something it's called like that <laughs> uh which drags people to our website on all the jobs but we there are probably 15 jobs we're trying to fill both an analyst class in the in the uh in the summer but tons of other jobs around this around the, the system here 
right? We brought on two businesses from Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Blue Fire and, and uh, Drawbridge Lending. Uh, our lending business is doing, doing well and growing fast. The Blue Fire business is great. It's active in almost all markets all the time. Asset management is growing. You know, Michael's rebooting the banking business. Uh, and the business I'm most excited about, well, actually, I'm excited about all of them, but, you know, our direct investment business, uh, our DeFi business, uh, small investments, sometimes not so small, and the projects that we hope kind of remake the financial landscape in the future. That's fascinating, right? We have small investment in a company called One Inch, and, you know, now it's trading up, you know, magnitudes where you invested. That business I love. And so put it all together, feel like we've got a, a great team of vibrant business all of a sudden. What do you think about the M&A business specifically? You know, a lot of folks are expecting a wave of consolidation across the crypto landscape. Just this morning, we saw NYDIG acquire digital assets data. That's a corner of the market. Analytics and data is a corner of the market that's really ripe for consolidation. Do you um, expect the firm to get in on a lot of um, deals to help enable some of these transactions? We are certainly going to try. My class has inherited the team we had here, putting together some new people. We had a one great result with uh, Blockfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was, I think, a, a great feather in the cap. There's going to be consolidation, a ton of it. You know, listen, we're going to have comp- competition, not just from crypto investment banks, but the real mainstream banks, right? I saw Morgan Stanley did a fundraising. Uh, Citibank is on this this SPAC that BACT is doing. Uh, and so you're seeing the big names of traditional banking get into our space really quick, partly because the scale got bigger. Uh, I don't you know, saw that back SPAC. They're looking at a monster valuation. What Lord do you think that valuation means for the space? I mean, this is a company, you know, we have a lot of respect <sighs> for the folks over at BACT, specifically Adam White. But I mean, this is a pre-product, you know, very yeah. little user-based company. That I, th- has- I think that says a lot about the euphoria in markets, the, both in the SPAC markets uh, and in the crypto markets. Uh, it says a lot about Jeff Sprecher, right? He is a well-respected, even though his wife just lost for Senate, a uh, well-respected businessman who's done nothing but make money for people. We're an investor, so I'm going to cheer it on. It does feel rich. <laughs> uh, but listen, you know, what's hard at the beginning of a, a revolution, it's the hard at the beginning of a movement, when you're in a revolution, you don't need to care about valuations. Well, no, but it's hard to dream of what, like, because you get stuck in the trenches. I mean, we had this with Galaxy, right? Oh, our stock is trading like crap for so long. And all of a sudden, it's starting to rally. And your first instinct is, oh, God, now it's expensive. And it takes a little bit of thinking and a long walk around the block and slapping your face and say, what am I talking about? The whole world changed. Our stock's amazingly cheap. And so I remember in that three three fifty, we we raised capital at three fifty, uh, and you know six eight weeks later, whatever ten weeks later, traded at thirteen. Like the imagination that Bitcoin could go to twenty thousand, the moment it was at twenty, I was like, shit, it's going to get to sixty pretty easy next year because that's ten percent of gold. And wait a minute, by the time it gets to gold, ten percent of gold, we're going to be talking twenty five percent of gold, and then it's going to then it's going to be where's gold, which is five hundred thousand. And then if you start thinking, well, shit, we own a lot of Bitcoin and our businesses are correlated to acceptance of crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and ever, you're like, wait a minute, if Bitcoin could get to 500,000 by 2024, 
Well, shit, Galaxy can get much higher than than your imagination had wanted to allow. And so it's funny, the, the two and a half year bear market beat people's expectations down and what we thought was a big move down. And now you've got to open your imagination. We have the tailwind at our back of this crazy monetary policy, we being the whole industry. Maybe more importantly, we have this idea that this revolution is happening, right? Bitcoin's not getting put back in its box. And so it might not roll out as fast as I want it to or think it's going to, but it's rolling out, right? Bitcoin has a store of values and digital gold. It kind of won the debate. It is a digital gold. DeFi is happening. It's going to be a harder fight because the banks have more at risk, right? Bitcoin doesn't really impact the banks much, but man, oh man, DeFi does. So they're going to fight. But you can see the forward progress that's happening. We know stable coins are going to happen. Most are going to be built on the Ethereum project. We know NFTs are coming, right? We're looking at a cool project I hope to announce in the next four, four, six weeks uh, in that space. And so we've gone from this we think is going to happen to we know it's going to happen. And so valuations are going to start reflecting that. So if BAC can do $2 billion pre-product, what does that mean for firms like BlockFi, Kraken, Coinbase? If Coinbase, well, when Coinbase IPOs, rather, what valuation could we see on that first day trade? Listen, Coinbase has the best brand in crypto, period. And so a lot of people will buy it. It will probably get to a crazy high and way overvalued valuation. But that's just the way markets work. You know, when Fortress... What do you think is crazy high, though, for Coinbase? 30 billion, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? 40 billion. And maybe they'll grow into it. You know, maybe they will build one of the great financial services companies of the world. It's hard to build great companies. Just is, you know? And if you do, you there's almost no valuation people won't pay. And so, you know, that means it's a great company. It's innovative. It's changing. It's pivoting. It's, you know, responsive to customers. And so... You know, it's, it, it's hard to predict where companies go in the next few years in a, in a field that's going as fast as us. You look at Alameda, you know, what Sam has done there. I mean, the guy just innovates and innovates and innovates, takes risks that, you know, some people wouldn't take and out of nowhere became one of the most interesting companies in the whole space. So how does Galaxy maybe benefit from this? Obviously, you guys have a large portfolio in the space or some of your venture holdings looking for an exit, what do you think might be the most attractive way for them to get that exit acquisition, SPAC, IPO? What's all, the, all what, three, what are they all, talking about right now? All of the above. We have some companies that are engaged in SPACs, some in mergers, some waiting for IPOs. Uh, we're hoping to help on our advisory side. Like that should be the, the low-hanging fruit should be look at our, you know, 55 venture investments and go start uh you know, calling on those CEOs. And so you can bet, you can bet that's part of our plan. But listen, I, you know, this is not like a time to harvest only. We're, we're making new investments in this space every day. Um, partly because I think, like I said, this is the first or second inning of the, of the crypto game of the blockchain revolution. It's not the, we're not, this is not November, 2017. I am positive this is not November 2017. So how is that informing some of the investment decisions you're making right now on the venture side? What what are you looking for? Is it mostly DeFi or infrastructure plays? What's the- I would split them into, into those two categories. Well, three categories. It's mostly DeFi. It's some infrastructure plays. 
And then we have a great gaming business, uh, right? It's Sam Engelbart and Richard Kim run. Uh, we call it Galaxy Interactive. That's the virtual world. It's video games. It's AR and VR. It's it's NFTs. It's you know the world of tomorrow if you want to think about it. And that's that's a spot that's tangential to crypto, right? It's not necessarily a crypto spot, but man, it's pretty close. And at one point, a lot of those companies are going to use blockchain in their business models. And so I love that space as well. What are some of the investments you've made in that space? Oh, God. Mythical Games is one that I know is doing well, uh, which is a game studio. Um, they're literally like 42 names. A lot of them are small investments uh, in the gaming space. I think we've put over, we manage a fund for Block One uh, in that space as well. Uh, and so I think between our money and their money, we've put over $160 million into it. What are you thinking about Block One these days? There's quite a number of things coming out of the rumor mill, especially with their CTO recently leaving. I've heard stuff about um, them being worried about, and you mentioned this earlier, just stuff about China um, crackdown happening over there. Um, Listen, How are you feeling in terms of your bullet? Bre Bre Brennan Blumen has been a... Uh, amazing steward of block one's you know capital period right i mean a lot of people give them shit for eos uh that they raise so much money to build eos but the way i look at it pretty clearly is they said we're going to do a ico that instead of being one day last 365 days and we're going to deliver a blockchain that is using a, a, a depos you know, uh, delegated proof of stake methodology as, as opposed to the other methodologies that are out there. We're going to deliver it to the community and we're going to hopefully support it. And, you know, they just got lucky and timed it perfectly that they caught the whole bubble of 17 and they were just given ether after ether after ether to buy these, you know, future EOS tokens. Uh, they delivered the blockchain. Uh, it's up and opera operational. Brendan, sold a lot of the ether because he thought it was a bubble, bought cash and then bought tons of Bitcoin and now has one of the largest Bitcoin positions in the, in the world. The EOS blockchain has had some successes, some failures. Uh, it's not done as well as, as I'm sure Blockwater had hoped it would. Uh, I think they're, they've got ideas on how to reposition. But again, the unique thing about crypto and these decentralized systems is once you birth the baby, it's not yours. It's not owned by Blockwater. Right. It's owned by the community. Uh, quite frankly, they have to be careful that they do too much with it because otherwise the SEC will say, wait a minute, this is yours, not the community's. Right. In the same way, Vitalik doesn't own the Ethereum blockchain uh, or Joe Lubin doesn't own the Ethereum blockchain. It's owned by the community. And so Block One is a company with lots of resources. Uh, they've got some cool projects, I'm sure, that uh, you'll hear about soon. And so in some ways, Brennan has been the savviest of all the crypto investors in that, you know, he sold Ether at the right time. He bought Bitcoin at the right time. And people give him shit because, well, you know, you raised all this money for the EOS blockchain. Like he didn't tell everyone, give me all the money, give me all the money. It literally, they timed a 360 day ICO almost perfectly. No one could have predicted that, right? If they had gotten $40 million instead of $4 billion, they would have still delivered an EOS blockchain. And so, you know, they, they settled with the SEC. Uh, and so they're, they've got a clean bill of health. They are, and I know from talking to him, his mindset is 
that to understand to, to really thrive in the world going forward, you've got to be regulatory compliant. You know, listen, that's a controversial decision, right? Crypto, we, we, we walk this fine line between want to be part of the crypto community, which is basically an F you to the system often, right? It's we don't trust, I mean, the whole crypto ethos was we don't trust centralized systems. The institutional ethos is we're playing with regulators. And so how do you walk that middle ground? I think what you're seeing Block One do is, is probably where the Larimer departure comes from is how how radical can you be when you want to be when you want to walk uh, you know within the regulatory framework that governments are giving you. And it, listen, you look at a guy like Arthur Hayes, who's a charismatic as hell entrepreneur. Now he's he's running from the government. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, hello, Arthur. You know, I feel for the guy because they made a bunch of mistakes early. It looked like they cleaned their act up later. Maybe I'm not, you know, I don't know what was under the skirt. Uh, but the long, the long arm of the law is long. Indeed. And, you know, now you got Brad Garlinghouse and, and his cohort, you know, fighting with the SEC. These, you know, the regulators don't screw around when they, when they, want, when they want to get you. And so how do you walk that fine line is, you know, something that I think... Uh, you know, Block One has, has so far done well, right? Settling with the SEC looks brilliant in hindsight. I want to zoom out and touch on something you mentioned the last time we spoke in May. You described Paul Tudor Jones's bullish Bitcoin take to being something that would open up a new universe. And in a sense, in the past half a year, we've seen a new universe open up with Drunken Miller and, you know, other investors who were previously more bearish on crypto and Bitcoin specifically changed their tune, right? Even um, Ray Dalio, to an extent, has come out and said that, you know, he's willing to take a second look or expose himself more to the space. And I've heard from folks inside the company that they're looking at putting out research or at least one piece of research connected to Bitcoin. And so you were clearly right to an extent on that one. It seems like a new universe has opened up. What is the next level? If we already have a lot of the macro and institutional investors within the space now, or at least entering the space to a degree, what's going to be the next universe? Is it publicly traded companies allocating as a part of a treasury strategy? I think that will be some, but, and you know, Michael Saylor is doing a, uh, a big, um, conference at the end of the month with CFOs and CEOs of tons of publicly traded companies or private companies and publicly traded companies, basically going to go open source on how he thought about it, how he did it legally, providing a great service, quite frankly, saving people tons of energy and effort and money to learn exactly what they did if you want to duplicate it. I think there will be some companies that will put some portion of their balance sheet into crypto. In general, corporate treasury is conservative. It's short duration. Uh, and so I'm watching that space. I think the companies you'll see do it first have something to do with the space. Square, PayPal, both great examples, um, right? If you're in the crypto biz, putting some of your money in crypto makes more sense. And then there'll be some you know, guys who just want to take the speculative bet. There's lots of rumor that Elon Musk is putting some of his treasury in crypto. I can't, you know, confirm that. But what would be more unique is he says, okay, and you can buy our cars with Bitcoin, right? Mm. Uh, and so I'm watching out for that. I know there's been a lot more than the ones that have been publicly talked about. I think 
the bigger funds are going to still come from the wealth channels of the world, right? Remember, most of the money is owned by 55 to 80 year olds in this world. The, the lion's share of savings, they have just started getting into crypto. That's where funds like ours and Scaramucci's and New York Digs, all going for the RIA community, getting into that wealth that doesn't feel comfortable with a bread wallet or a, you know, a Coinbase account. And then the insurance companies, uh, like I talked about earlier, big asset managers. And so there are plenty, plenty of uh, the cherry on top of the cake would, of course, be. And, and this would be the real driver if you could get a reserve manager to take a stake. I haven't seen one yet. I've heard of one. Can't confirm it. But that would be, I think, the uh, in essence, the killer app. <laughs> the space. A lot of people who might be listening, maybe we'll have some new time listeners, new retail blood, or maybe new institutional blood. Who really knows? They might be tuning in for the first time or listening to you speak for the first time. What advice do you have for new entrants in this space? Maybe we can start with like more mom and pop retail punters and then maybe for larger institutions. But um, obviously it's not for the faint of heart, but what else might you, what, what sagic wisdom might you impart? Listen, I think you want to Put enough money in that it matters, but not so much that you're checking your blockfolio every 15 minutes. You want to at least take some of your money. Let, even if you're a wealthy in individual and you want to put something in our fund, I would say, all right, put a million dollars in our fund or $100,000 in our fund. Put a couple thousand dollars on a, on a wallet so you learn how Bitcoin works, so you learn how the crypto system works. Send your first $15 uh, to a friend across the country. And you're like, wait a minute, I just did that in 30 seconds. And so I think using, using crypto, even just to transfer money between your kids, helps people start to understand it. I used to tell people to put two to three, one to one to two percent of their money in, and then I upped it to three to five percent because I thought crypto had been de-risked. I still think crypto is a lot less risky today than it was a year ago, even though we're at 31,000. And so right now, if I buy it, I would save room to buy it in case it went to 24,000. So buy some at 31,500, save a little bit of a slug if it gets to 24,500, buy there, and then shut off the screen for a while. And if it doesn't get there, you'll know it'll hold 30,000 in a while and start trading back up. Well, then you can buy a little higher. But I think Bitcoin's going to be significantly higher at the end of the year. And I think in three to four years time, it'll be real higher, much higher. So that's my, my advice is to be rational, be longer term thinking and use it a little bit. And don't be too over levered. It's definitely no. a lesson we've learned from the weekend. Listen, there are two ways you go bankrupt in the world. Two ways you die as a financial investor. One is asset liability mismatch where you, you know, borrow short and lend long. And the other is too much leverage. And so, yeah, you got to be very careful. I, I use leverage in my life at about 35%. You know, and then I'm hearing people using 300%. I'm like, what? So I don't think, you know, no leverage doesn't feel right. Right right now with interest rates as low as they are, if you can mortgage your house and borrow money at 2.5% for 10 years or 20 years, everyone on this call should mortgage their house and borrow that money. When you invest that money, you should be smart with it. Don't go 125x on, no. on uh, some crypto perpetual no. swamp venue. Mike, well, this was a great, great episode. I feel like we recapped everything that's going on right now and can't wait to get this one out. Godspeed. Congrats on a great 2020. And we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Take care.